freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Palace Shaw, inviting you to a special episode of Under the Tree called All Eyes on Palestine. As Israel continues to execute a pre-announced genocide, ethnically cleanses Gaza, and attempts to liquidate an enclosure that they created, everyone of goodwill around the world is calling for a ceasefire. The U.S. media says that Gaza is starving, and it's true that famine is imminent, but the passive voice is an obscenity. The truth is that Israel is starving Palestinians deliberately. The U.S. stands alone in blocking a ceasefire. This episode is curated from episodes 23, 41, 77, and 81, episodes recorded over the past two years. We hope these conversations are enlightening and illuminating, and that they deepen your sense of urgency in these terrible times. We open each episode with a poem, our by now familiar practice. Today's poem is Identity Card 1964 by the brilliant Palestinian national poet Mahmoud Darwish, who was born in Albirwa in Galilee, a village that was occupied and later razed by the Israeli army. Because they'd missed the official Israeli census, Darwish and his family were considered, quote, internal refugees or, quote, present absent aliens. This poem was initially approved by the Israeli Education Ministry for use in high schools and later rescinded in reaction to a furor from the right wing that this poem and Darwish himself was dangerous and subversive. Here is the poem, Identity Card 1964, read by Malik Alim. Write down, I am an Arab. My ID card number is 50,000. My children, eight, and the ninth is coming after the summer. Are you angry? Write down, I am an Arab. I work with my toiling comrades in a quarry. My children are eight, and out of the rocks I draw their bread, clothing, and writing paper. I do not beg for charity at your door, nor do I grovel at your doorstep tiles. Does that anger you? Write down, I am an Arab, a name without a title. Patient in a country where everything lives on flared-up anger. My roots took firm hold before the birth of time, before the beginning of the ages, before the cypress and olives, before the growth of pastures. My father of the people of the plow, not of noble masters. My grandfather, a peasant of no prominent lineage, taught me pride of self before reading of books. My house is a watchman's hut of sticks and reed. 
Does my status satisfy you? I am a name without a title. Write down, I am an Arab. Hair coal black, eyes brown. My distinguishing feature on my head, a kufi topped by the yigal. And my palms, rough as stone, scratch anyone who touches them. My address, an unarmed village, forgotten, whose streets are nameless, and all its men are in the field and quarters. Are you angry? Write down, I am an Arab, robbed of my ancestors' vineyards and of the land cultivated by me and all my children. Nothing is left for us, my grandchildren, except these rocks. Will your government take them too, as reported? Therefore, right at the top of page one, I do not hate people. I do not assault anyone. But I get hungry. I eat the flesh of my usurper. Beware. Beware of my hunger and of my anger. That was Identity Card 1964 by Mahmoud Darwish, read by Malik Alim. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to compose an authentic piece of writing from nowhere, the nowhere of the underground and the nowhere of utopia. Today we're shifting slightly and asking you not to write, but to draw. And here's the prompt. Draw a freehand sketch of the Middle East, including Bahrain, Cyprus, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Israel, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Syrian Arab Republic, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. Note specifically each place where you find a U.S. military base or presence and pay close attention to the borders of Israel-Palestine. Okay, begin. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I'm grateful to be joined today by Rashid Khalidi, a longtime friend and comrade. Rashid is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, author of seven books about the Middle East, including the acclaimed Palestinian Identity, and most recently, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. With his partner, the intrepid Mona Khalidi, he is the father of three brilliant kids and now three stunning grandchildren. Welcome, Rashid. Thanks, Bill. It's good to have you. You're, of course, a model. Many people know you. You're a model of an engaged scholar or a public intellectual. You comment regularly on the pu- in the public square. You're interviewed everywhere. I see you often on Democracy Now! or CNN or somewhere, and I read your op-eds. So I'd like to start in a place that's probably a bit off script for you, but very common for you and I when we're in conversation. And that is, how are the kids? And tell me a quick note about the grandchildren. Kids are good. Um, thank heavens. Uh, I was just on a Zoom call with a bunch of family all over the world, uh, Beirut, Damascus, you know, all over the place, including uh, my two daughters uh, and two of my grandchildren. So everybody's wow. good. Wow. One daughter is in France. One daughter is in Chicago. Right. And And my son in Chile was in the middle of a a Zoom rehearsal of a play. I have no idea. 
Yeah, your so son, he couldn't be part of the things. But I gather he's okay since he finally answered us and told us why he couldn't be part of the Zoom call. So, Your son in Chile is a playwright and an artist. Um, the, the daughter in Chicago is a lawyer and runs an extraordinary organization called PAL Legal, Palestine Legal. And your older daughter is in France where she is an archaeologist. Yes? That's absolutely right. That's the crew. An amazing crew. And and uh, for many years, we lived as a blended family, and I feel like they're almost my own kids. And We would call it a pod them. today. Exactly. Yeah, it would, today it would be a pod. Exactly. One of the things that I was fascinated with in your most recent book, and uh, we have to talk about that, but we have to go backwards and forwards. But uh, your most recent book is dedicated to your grandchildren. And I think it's a, it's a very moving dedication. Um, it says, I dedicate this book to my grandchildren, Tariq, Idris, and Noor, all born in the 21st century, who will hopefully see the end of this hundred years war. What were you thinking when, when you wrote that dedication? Well, I mean, uh, all my life and all my parents' life, um, we have all lived with this. Um, right. You know, I was thinking a lot about an earlier generation as I wrote the book. I, I drew on my, my, my own memories, my, my parents' memories, my things they told me, and things uncles and aunts and grandparents uh, uh, experience as well as others of, the, of those generations. And I'm thinking about my grandkids and hoping that they won't have to go a whole life living uh, with this struggle. Um, so that was, that was my thinking. You call it you call it the hundreds years war, and while we're not going to be able to have the time to go into all hundred years, I actually would like you to talk a bit about that title, and and mm-hmm. really the audience for this podcast is not well versed in Palestine. Maybe you could give us a quick primer about the six um, declarations of war and what you mean by the hundred years war. Where does it begin? Where are we in it now? Right. Um, well, most people who I hope will be able to read this book don't know much about the topic. And what they know, a lot of it is wrong. Uh, one of the things people think they know is that this is a conflict that's been going on since time immemorial. It's complete nonsense. It starts in 1917 when Britain supports the Zionist movement and basically says there's one people in this country, the Jewish people, and the rest of you have no political or national rights. And that's the start of a hundred years war on the Palestinians. The second thing people think they know is it's a struggle between two peoples, like say the French and the Germans. It's not, it's a different kind of struggle. There are now two peoples, but one was planted or planted itself or established itself in Palestine um, as part of what it described as a settler colonial project. This is not my terminology. This is how the Zionist movement saw itself for the first many decades of its existence, implanted by the greatest imperial power of the age, the Great Britain. At that point, Rashid, what what percentage of the population was Jewish in, in, in 1917? Approximately five, six, seven, maybe percent. Okay. We're talking 1917, right. the time of the Balfour right. Declaration. So this is a, an Arab country with a Jewish minority, uh, most of whom had been there for ages, centuries, some of them, you know, forever. Um, but it had been an, a, 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 an Arab country for, as I say, millennium and a half, whatever. Um, the point is not what it had been. The point is that there was no conflict before modern political Zionism. There was no Jewish Muslim or Jewish Arab war going on for a hundred years back, 500, a thousand years back, didn't happen. So this is a modern conflict arising from modern nationalism, modern settler 
colonialism and modern imperialism, 20th century. Uh, the Zionist movement starts formally in 1897, but it becomes what it, what it turns into when the British support this movement. So that's the first declaration of war, the Balfour Declaration, when Britain says, basically, we're going to establish a Jewish national home in an essentially Arab country and never mentions the Arabs or the Palestinians, except to say they can have certain limited rights, but not political rights, not national rights. So that's the first declaration of war. And I go through, I, I, don't, want, I don't need to go through each of these declarations of war, but what I'm arguing is that this is not just a, a struggle between uh, uh, the Zionist movement and, and Jews and later Israelis and, and Palestinian Arabs. It's a struggle in which the world, the international community, the great powers play the central role. You can't understand it without understanding the Balfour Declaration. You can't understand it without understanding how the United Nations partitions Palestine. Basically, the Soviets and the Americans push through a resolution, which gives most of the country to what is still, in 1947, a Jewish minority. So the bulk of the country goes to a minority established with the help of British imperialism over the preceding several decades. That's the second, I call that the partition resolution of 1947, a second declaration of war. And I go on and talk about others. 1967, you have a UN Security Council resolution. And I explain how this was not a resolution designed to resolve the conflict, quote unquote. It was designed to, to essentially uh, do a bunch of things that uh, aided and abetted Israel's uh, attempt to establish itself in the place of the Palestinians. So I go through uh, this, this hundred years talking about several, what I call declarations of war, uh, sometimes by Israel, but largely by international powers or by Israel together with, with the United States or another great power. So this, in many ways, you're describing how Zionism, you know, takes off as a project in 1917. You can hear a much longer conversation with Rashid Khalidi by tuning in to episode 23. Excited to be joined in conversation with Dima Khalidi, founder and director of Palestine Legal and cooperating counsel with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Dima Khalidi is a lawyer, a writer, a community educator, an activist and organizer who represents in her life and her work the fight for justice and freedom for Palestine and the Palestinian people. Welcome, Dima Khalidi. I'm so excited to be here, Bill. Well, I... <laughs> You're you're exaggerating. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's wonderful to see you as always. Um, I really do want to dive into the questions that animate your work, but maybe we could start by just you talking a bit about um, Palestine Legal and um, and how you started it, when it started, and what its purpose in the world is. Talk a little about Pal Legal. Yeah. Um, you know, I I went to law school. Um, you know, with a little bit of an ideal view of kind of what we could do with the law and and international law in particular, I always wanted to you know imagine my work would be focused on Palestine. Um, and through law school and and otherwise, I was a bit disillusioned with with international law. But I um, had the fortune of working at the Center for Constitutional Rights during my law school career. And afterwards, and especially with Michael Ratner, who, you know, got a few of us together to really think through what we could do on the issue of Palestine. It was something that, you know, he had become very committed to having 
finally visited occupied uh, Palestine mm. and, you know, overcoming his, his Zionism of, of his early, earlier years. And, um, you know, he, he had some partners who really wanted to invest in something. And, you know, with CCR had, had done so much already trying to hold Israeli officials accountable for war mm-hmm. crimes and mm-hmm. had, had failed, you know, the, the legal system is just not, um, equipped or designed to hold, uh, our own, you know, allies in our, in our own government accountable. So, um, you know, what we decided to focus on after a lot of research and with Michael's urging as well, uh, was, was the movement here in the United States that, you know, after talking to many folks around the world and, and domestically, it, um, it became really clear that organizing around Palestine was, uh, getting harder and harder. People faced more and more obstacles on campuses, um, in, you know, in different kinds of forums. And, um, you know, we were seeing lawsuits, criminal prosecutions. Um, and, you know, this is also after the, the kind of really traumatic, um, prosecutions of folks in the post 9 11 era for humanitarian, you know, assistance to Palestine. Mm. So, so there was this, um, there was this clear need for legal support for the movement in the United States, pushing back against this really intensive effort to censor Palestine advocacy, people who were speaking out about Palestine, um, Mm -hmm. academics, you know, students, activists everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. We, um, we are here as a kind of first stop uh, for, for people who are being attacked for talking honestly and openly about Palestine, supporting Palestinian rights um, and we do all kinds of work, you know, we're, we're not a typical law firm. We're not just in the courts. We're really working to support the movement and to achieve its goals. Um, and a lot of it is defensive work, you know, preventing censorship from happening or fighting censorship when it does happen. But we also work with, with people to make sure they know their rights. We do know your rights workshops. We document what's happening, the kind of repression who's behind it, you know, the, the laws that are being passed to try to uh, punish Palestine activism. Um, we organize lawyers to, uh, to be there to, to defend uh, this movement. And, you know, we're, we're writing and we're speaking about the issues here. So, yeah. And, and Pal Legal started, what year did you actually start as an organization? I know you spent some time building up to it, but when did Pal Legal yeah. start? We started in 2012 and, and right. really launched in 2013. So. so you're getting close to a decade. And I know you personally were involved with the People's Law Office in Chicago, assisting in the defense of Mohammed Salah. Uh, could you say a word about that? Yeah, it was, um, it was during law school I interned at the People's Law Office. And uh, at the time, they were defending Mohammed Salah, who was... Uh, you know, facing criminal charges for sending humanitarian aid to Palestine, basically decades before. Mm-hmm. And it was a prosecution that really exemplified the intensive uh, coordination and cooperation between Israel and the U.S. prosecutors. You know, mm-hmm. they were sharing information. They were, they had 
um, uh, Israeli intelligence agents testifying anonymously in court so that they couldn't be cross-examined, right? They, um, they tried to, they, they've succeeded in uh, preventing evidence of Mohammed Salah's torture mm. uh, from being uh, talked about in court um, and being presented as evidence in court. Um, so it was a, a really um, amazing trial that I got to witness. Um, the, the awesome Michael Deutsch was was right. uh, Ahmed lawyer, right, and right. Um, yeah, and I did a lot of research and, and work uh, supporting that that case. Yeah, you've had several mentors in the law as well as in life that have uh, has set you up for the position you're in now. It sounds like I mean uh, Michael Ratner, Michael Deutsch, others. Um, and then you went to SOAS, right? You went to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, right? I and got a master's there. I did. Just say a word about that, because I found that fascinating. Yeah, no, I studied um, international law at, at SOAS and um, legal systems, right? And, and specifically Islamic law. Mm. Um, but it was a, a really formative year in a lot of ways. Um, I... It, I had a great time, partly because it was the first time I had a, a very uh, Palestinian community. There was mm. a great community of Palestinians from all over, some a lot from Palestine and and many from the diaspora. And you know, we we had a Dubke troop. We were doing a lot of political work, um, nice. and uh, so so that was a great year and too short, really, of, right. <laughs> of a time there. But um, it. It set me up to to spend a couple of years at Birzeit University, working um, in the West Bank on a project that was d- looking at the way that traditional and informal legal systems kind of coexisted in Palestine. So mm-hmm. you know, taking everything, it, it, it's such a mishmash of legal systems when you think about it, from the Ottoman to the British to the uh, you know to the Jordanian and Egyptian to the Israeli. Um, to the Palestinian Authority, right? And on top of all that, or underneath all that, perhaps, is this informal legal system that has existed, you know, and and evolved from tribal law to, you know, informal justice systems developed during the first intifada to, you know, make sure that things weren't going into court. So it was ways that the society has... um, has uh, mediated conflict, um, you know, and and how that kind of interacts with all these formal legal systems. It's really yeah, so it, it was a great intellectual journey for you. I mean, right? I mean, it was yeah. it was fun and interesting, and I don't know if you draw on any of that now, but it certainly was a deep dive into you call it a mishmash of traditions. Well, the area is a mishmash of peoples and religions and traditions, and probably a very rich intellectual journey for you. Yeah, it was. And, you know, maybe that's something I'll go back to one day. Why not? You should write about it. It's true. I want to jump ahead and then we can go back and forth. But I want to jump ahead to this moment because we're witnessing something in Palestine right now that, I don't know, some people think is a bit of a turning point. Um, The rebellion of Palestinians across Israel, the occupied territories and Gaza, has seemed to me quite extraordinary. And the coordination of young people, and you've written about this, maybe say a word about this moment that we're living through 
in Palestinian history? Yeah, um, you know, I think the moment, and and it feels like there have been, you know, several watershed moments, even just in my lifetime. But um, this one feels a little different in that it um, it really is is a moment of unity across Palestine, across you know all the Palestinian. Um, it, realities mm-hmm. um and and you know the 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 zionist project really at its heart has has tried to erase palestine palestine and palestinians and they it's it, you know it's done that through attempts to divide us and conquer us of course and so this moment has has shown that you know palestinians Everywhere, you know, whether they're in Jerusalem, Gaza, the West Bank, uh, you know, in 1948 Palestine, what's what's now Israel, um, it, you know, in as refugees in Lebanon or Jordan or or anywhere and and across the diaspora, um, you know, it's it's what people are calling the unity intifada for mm. they they are saying with one voice that you know that we are Palestinian, this is all Palestine, um, and we refuse to, you know, disappear, mm-hmm. um, and we're one. So I think it's the first time in a while that we've seen that kind of uh, unity of, of voice um, and people rallying. You know, it's it may have started in Sheikh Jarrah with the, with the forced uh, expulsion of, of Palestinians from, from their homes there, um, but the fact that, you know, people in Gaza and people, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel all kind of came together to say, no, we, we will not abide um, is what's unique. And especially Palestinian citizens of Israel who, who have been um, not historically have not been as involved in Palestinian uprisings. You know, we're seeing um an uprising among Palestinian citizens of Israel and of course now mass arrests of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um it's I think a really important moment and and it's mobilized people worldwide um as have you know past um past wars on Gaza uh you know it's it's when we see the the most violence against Palestinians that we, we also see the most mobilization. And that's, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I guess the silver lining of a very horrific few weeks that we've, we've witnessed. I hear the phrase more and more, um, that Israel is an apartheid state and that's being actually referenced more commonly inside the United States. And you mentioned ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem and elsewhere, um, would you call? Would, do you think an apartheid state is the is an appropriate phrase to use to describe Israel? Well, you know, I think Palestinians have been describing their reality for a long time now, and they describe the separate, unequal um, lives that they they live. You know, whether it's um, separate roads for Arabs, uh, Palestinians, and, and Jewish Israelis or, or settlers, um, whether it's uh, an unequal um, system and it, for Palestinian citizens of Israel who just don't have the same rights. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the definition of apartheid. It's a, you know, crime under international law and it has a very specific definition, et cetera. So I, according to, you know, Beit Salem, the Israeli human rights organization, according to Human Rights Watch, you know, what Israel does and what, what Palestinians live through can be said to be the, a crime of apartheid. But it's not just apartheid, right? Um, this is a settler colonial state that has um, occupied and dispossessed and um, subjugated Palestinians for over 70 years. So it's more than just apartheid is what I'd say. You can hear a much longer conversation with Dima Khalidi by tuning in to episode 41. Well, the book that I came across was by Fida Jirius, and she is a Palestinian, and it's a Palestinian identity that's not well known, which is Palestinians who live inside the borders of the current borders of Israel. And uh, she's an amazing woman. She just wrote this memoir about her family life. And, you know, 20% of the people inside Israel, Israel today, are Palestinian. So it's a growing population. Um, But her family story uh, is, is told so beautifully in this memoir called Stranger in My Own Land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, urge people to get it. I I actually was given this book by my friend Cliff, who was also interviewed on Under the Tree. Yeah, Cliff Mayotte. Yeah. Yeah, Cliff. And, uh, and I, it's, it's a long book. I started it and I just couldn't put it down as it was a, it, it does a, important piece of memoir, which is that we, her family story, with the story of the Nakba, the founding of Israel, and the ongoing struggles. And, you know, they are driven from pillar to post, you know, their family's village is destroyed, they're moved here, moved there. The family was, uh, the father was a a leading intellectual of, and is still alive, a leading intellectual and uh, theorist of Palestinian uh, unity, and was in Lebanon, uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, when most of the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization was there, uh, was one of the heads of the PLO Research Center. And um, then Israel invaded Lebanon. They actually blew up the research center, which killed her mother. And uh, her father and other family members then fled to Cyprus and were in Cyprus until after the Oslo Accords, and then they moved back to the West Bank. She currently lives within Israel. But, um, you know, the whole story of her life being driven around and and the different chapters of it are, are stunning and amazing. And for me and for many stupid Americans like me, uh, it pushed me from being concerned about the bad policies of Israel to questioning the entire Zionist project. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, she she has a remarkable story to tell, and she tells it with such clarity and honesty and really a, an understated passion um, for humanity. I, I just found our conversation um, 
so moving and i want the world to hear her voice let's right. let's let's go to the conversation we had a few days ago yeah um and and let's let's hear from fida thanks so much rick okay see you soon We are completely honored and delighted that you've joined us, and we're going to have a, I think, a rich and productive talk about your book, about your writing, and about the situation in Palestine today. Um, it's so great to have you here. Can you tell us um, where you are right now? Where, what city you're in? Where you are, and and maybe what you can see from your front window. Uh, sure. Uh, I have been uh, living in Ramallah for the last uh, 14 years or so. And uh, as it happens, just uh, two months ago, uh, I made the decision to uh, leave uh, Ramallah. And I'm now back in the Galilee in my father's village, uh, which is called Fasuta. Mm -hmm. uh, we are in the Galilee, which is the north of uh, historic Palestine, what is today Israel. And we are literally just a few kilometers from. Uh, the Lebanese border. Uh, we're in the Galilean mountain range, which is very beautiful. Uh, so around us are, you know, thick forests uh, with pine trees, cypress trees, uh, and so on. And uh, out, even out of my front window are lots of trees in our garden and the orchards of the neighbors and so on. So it's a very idyllic uh, existence. And one wow. could almost for yeah, one could almost forget. I always think about this: where you know which country we're in and what's going on. Sometimes only a couple of hours away. Yeah, I often feel the same. I feel like um, when I when I'm fortunate enough as I am right now to be in the wilderness and to be in nature and to be by a river and feel at peace. Uh, it's a hard contradiction to remember that. The world is in flames and that it's not all as it seems. But I'm glad you started by talking about the Galilean, where, where it is, because one of the great gaps in American knowledge about Palestine is even a geographic sense. What does it look like? Where are you? And um, I know I, I've, I know the area some, but I, don't, I think it, it's worth describing to Americans how Israel and Palestine fit together and, and don't. Um, so I appreciate your beginning there, but say another word about the geography and and how you came from Ramallah to Galilee. Uh, yes, of course, uh, well, the, the chief uh, problem, of course, uh, with people uh, recognizing where Palestine is, is the fact that Palestine uh, officially or on the world stage has been obliterated from the map. Uh, today, the, the so-called state of Palestine, at least on paper, exists in the West Bank uh, and the Gaza, which are near the center of the country, near Jerusalem. Uh, however, no Palestinian state has yet been attained uh, since the Nakba or come into being, despite the fact that this was the promise of the Oslo Accords uh, now about 30 years ago. Uh, Palestine, historic Palestine, is a is a thin and narrow uh, sliver of land uh, with the Mediterranean on the shore of the Mediterranean, uh, and on its east, uh, north east, uh, north and east, it's uh, bordered by uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon, and Jordan, uh, and to the south by uh, Egypt, uh, by C the Sinai Desert and Egypt. Um, 
with the Nakba in 1948 and the establishment of the State of Israel, what was historic Palestine essentially ceased to exist. At least it ceased to exist formally uh, on the world and by the international community. And overnight, we found this sliver of land being turned into what is uh, today Israel. Uh, after the 1967 war, some 20 years later, Israel occupied uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which until then had been under the control of Jordan and Egypt, respectively. Uh, and it put them under military uh, occupation, a situation that persisted until the signing of the peace agreements uh, in 95, the Oslo Peace Accords, 93 to 95. Uh, thereafter, these areas came under control of the Palestinian Authority, and that's still the case today. But effectively, they are still under Israeli occupation because Israel maintains a strong presence in them. Uh, and uh, dictates the lives uh, of their uh, residents and makes their lives mostly miserable. Uh, I was living in Ramallah, which is uh, just uh, north of uh, Jerusalem. It's the de facto capital uh, of the West Bank. Um, most of the Palestinian authorities' institutions are there, uh, and most of the a lot of the uh, foreign uh, NGOs, uh, civil society organizations, and so on. Uh, to travel to the Galilee from Ramallah, you basically go upwards, you go north. Uh, so from the center of the country, north in the direction of the of Lebanon, of the Lebanese border. And it's about a three hour ride. The country, uh, it's very important, I think, to mention to uh, Americans, um, is very small. Certainly, I mean, by by, you know, the measurements of the United States, the country is tiny. And uh, in a recent, you know, book event, uh, I was saying, and I even, I think, I believe I said it somewhere in the book, that it is remarkable how a place that is so tiny can hold so much suffering. Uh, in 1948, uh, during the Nakba, uh, my father was 10. He saw uh, children from, uh, and uh, their parents from nearby uh, villages uh, being ousted, uh, effectively expelled from their villages across the border uh, into southern Lebanon as the fighting intensified. That our part of the Galilee was really the last part to be seized in the war. Uh, it's at the top northwest uh, of the country and uh, it was the last to fall. Uh, as he saw people from uh, surrounding villages uh, leaving, uh, this put a lot of uh, questions in his mind as a young child. You know, he didn't understand what uh, on earth was happening. When he visited their empty villages later, his shock uh, intensified. And I think that planted a kind of a seed uh, in his mind uh, that something here was terribly wrong. Uh, and he wanted to find out what it is and he wanted to do something uh, about it. Uh, and uh, he went on, uh, he studied, uh, finished his schooling in the village and then went to the Terrasanta. A school in Nazareth and from there to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He qualified as a lawyer and was one of very few uh, Palestinians uh, to do so at the time uh, and uh, was practicing law. At the same time, he became uh, a leader in Al-Ard. Al-Ard was the first uh, Palestinian uh, national movement, you could say, to emerge after the blow of the Nakba and Israel's creation. And it campaigned for, you know, the return of the refugees, the return of the plundered uh, properties, uh, the lifting of the military rule that had been instated on the small minority of Palestinians uh, that remained in their country. He was, of course, heavily harassed uh, by, uh, for his work. He was repeatedly uh, imprisoned. 
uh, and had his movements curtailed. And eventually in 1970, he had to leave with my late mother to Beirut. It was voluntary expulsion because he was going to be imprisoned for uh, for a long time. In Beirut, uh, he joined Fatah and he worked with Yasser Arafat. He eventually became his advisor, or one of his advisors on Israeli affairs, and he directed the PLO Research Center. Uh, I was born in Beirut, as was my brother. They were turbulent times because the Lebanese civil war in the 70s uh, was also uh, uh, raging. Uh, and eventually, in 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon with the aim of driving out the PLO uh, and all its personnel and forces there. It was a very, very uh, bloody, uh, gruesome invasion. Uh, thousands of people were killed, thousands disappeared. Uh, Beirut, West Beirut was pretty much annihilated. And uh, I lost my mother uh, during that war. Mm. Uh, in June... 1983, we left Lebanon. We were among the last, really, uh, Palestinians uh, who had worked with the PLO to leave, and we relocated to Cyprus. Now, all along, to me as a child, the idea of returning to Palestine was never really a concrete one. It was simply not on the horizon. I understood that my father was a political activist, that he could not go home, that if he went home, he faced, you know, imprisonment or worse. Uh, and that we were simply in exile. This was the condition that I had become uh, accustomed to. Uh, and I went, you know, in school, we went to school in Cyprus, then I went to university in England. And all the while, you know, my my sort of trajectory, imagined trajectory for my life was, you know, to come back to Cyprus and find a job, which I did, and carry on there. Almost out of the blue, at least for me at the time, the Oslo Accords were signed. And out of the blue, we found ourselves eventually being able to come back uh, to our village and visit it for the first time. Uh, this was probably the biggest uh, and most, uh, most I don't know, uh, uh, the memorable event uh, of my life. Uh, it was really huge uh, to us because we had never expected it to happen. We were, you know, all our extended family was here. It was really, really very uh, intense emotionally. And about six months later, in June '95, uh, we came here to live uh, permanently. Uh, thus started my journey, uh, you know, uh, the honeymoon part was over, the happiness of return to Palestine and so on. And slowly uh, I began to receive the, the rude awakening that this was actually Israel, that I was, that I had become an Israeli citizen, you know, by virtue of my father's uh, citizenship, which was still intact. We, we got ours and that I had to somehow navigate life. Uh, among uh, Jewish Israelis and learn Hebrew and work in their institutions uh, and so on with the baggage that I held with my mother's loss, with my growing up as a Palestinian, with my understanding the, the trauma uh, and everything that the Palestinian people had gone through. I stuck it out for eight years and then I went to Canada. Uh, I lived in Canada for six years and then I had to come back home. My stepmom uh, was uh, ill and this time I chose to come back to the West Bank, to Ramallah, uh, where I lived for the longest chunk, really, for about 14 years. Uh, pretty much within the first few years of living in Ramallah, I also understood about the occupation, which I had never lived under or experienced uh, on a first-hand basis. Uh, uh, and it was brutal. It was really brutal to see the, the daily practices against uh, you know, a hapless Palestinian population to see the intricate system that had been put in place, not just by Israel, but by the international community, to keep the Palestinians captive, to 
to, you know, uh, uh, prevent their dream of statehood or any form of independence or sovereignty. Uh, and to see the humiliation, really, that people endured and the misery and the pain that they endured on a daily basis, the deaths, the arrests, the disappearances. I mean, it was really, it's, it was very, very difficult. But along the, along the way, I made friends in Ramallah. I had work there. And so I stayed for, you know, all of this chunk of time. Eventually, the last few years, it just, it became uh, too, too much. Uh, and recently, uh, unfortunately, I, I had to make the decision to leave. I simply could not stay there uh, anymore. So my life, you could say, has been a series of stations. Uh, and I don't know if any of them were really completely voluntary. It was, you know, more like you are trying to cope with the demons by running from one place to another. Now that I look back on all this journey that, you know, I realized that's what it was. Although at the time it felt, you know, yes, I'm, I'm, you know, free and I'm doing what I want to do and so on. It was not really, none of these places were really uh, made by choice as such, even leaving Cyprus. I mean, my father was still working with the PLO at the time and there was no question of remaining in Cyprus, even if we had wanted to, because the PLO had relocated all of its institutions to Gaza and then to the West Bank. Uh, so now when I look back on this journey, I feel a mixture really of, of you know, um, the gratitude, I suppose, because, you know, I can make the decision to leave these situations and to go elsewhere. And at the same time, a lot of pain uh, for my friends that are still there for the daily life, the reality that I understand and that, you know, I cannot ever uh, wipe out or forget. And for our reality as Palestinians, uh, so, so scattered. Uh, across so many geographical uh, boundaries. Wow, um, Vida, that you tell that story so beautifully in your book, "Stranger in My Own Land," and it reminds me of what Edward Said says: just basically a life of exile, exile from mm -hmm. here to there, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is stunningly painful and beautiful as you tell it. Um, one thing, and again, we're sort of conscious that a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in the U.S. A lot of people don't understand. They think of, oh, Palestinians, they're on the West Bank or in Gaza. But the whole identity of those who live within what's called Israel now um, is something that is quite different. And, and I guess regarded by uh, Israeli law as uh, Israeli Arabs. But can you describe a little bit what the uh, sort of identity and status is of Palestinians who are within the borders of Israel? Uh, yes, thank you very much, uh, Rick. Indeed, after the Nakba, uh, which was really the biggest blow uh, that the Palestinian people uh, suffered, uh, uh, about uh, 700,000 uh, Palestinians, uh, more than half the population of the country were expelled uh, and uh, the estimates range, but I think more than 300 uh, villages were uh, wiped off uh, the map. Uh, what happened was a small subset of the Palestinian population of what became Israel managed to stay. It managed to stay for various reasons, including the chaos at the time, the fact that uh, Israel in occupying certain places was already facing some form of international repercussions because of the refugee crisis that was growing in the region. Uh, and the fact, I, I suppose, that, you know, the, the operation uh, stretched out really for more than two years. I mean, although we refer to it as 1948, the expulsions did continue for about two years after that, well into 1950. 
Um, the total number of people that stayed uh, were about 13% of mm-hmm. the changed uh, population. And they were immediately placed under military rule by the Israeli authorities. Uh, military rule effectively meant that the um, Israeli government or authorities had total control over their lives. They dictated um, uh, where they went. Uh, any movement about between their villages or towns required uh, permits from the military governor. Uh, this governor intervened, intervened in everything, where people lived, where they worked, what they did, who they associated with. Uh, it was really a total form of uh, control uh, of these people's lives in order to ensure that, you know, the uh, the, the creation of the state would go unhindered, uh, there would be no uh, disturbance to its plans and so on. These people found themselves really um, in a state of total shock. I mean, not only had they lost the majority of their people uh, and many villages uh, stood there empty or were eventually destroyed by the Israeli state, uh, but they also found themselves as a minority in this state, heavily persecuted uh, and not knowing where to turn. Uh, It took them really uh, about 10 years uh, to recover from this shock and to begin to organize. Uh, and to understand more about their lot, uh, you know, as as uh, people who had been given citizenship, but, in a, you know, uh, an inferior one. Um, for many decades, uh, the rest of the world had the blind eye to these people. It didn't really see them. Particularly after the June 1967 war, as all attention turned to the new wave of refugees. Um, and to, you know, Israel's victory against, you know, uh, uh, three three Arab states, two Arab states. And, uh, you know, they forgot, I mean, these people were the, the Palestinians who remained in, in Israel itself. And what became Israel were largely uh, forgotten or ignored. And in some cases, they were accused uh, to have been um, co-opted into the Zionist project by accepting citizenship. Um the world or the Arab countries were largely ignorant of the fact that this citizenship had been forced upon them, that they had no choice really, uh, if they wanted to continue living in their villages and uh, towns. Mm-hmm. Um, only in recent years, I believe, and when I say recent, I mean probably in the last, you know, as recently as two decades or so, 20, maybe 30 years, uh, has the world become more aware of this uh, segment of the Palestinian people as they have spoken out more uh, and they have become uh, more vocal, uh, more internationally known as well. And they have become also, uh, they have uh, challenged uh, the Israeli uh, government. They have entered, uh, managed to enter the Israeli parliament, formed their parties and so on. Of course, with a lot of struggle, uh, Israel always likes to boast about being, you know, a democracy and giving the Palestinians within it uh, a chance to uh, to act within this democracy. And this is true. However, little is said about the uh, the racism and the backlash that these people face, uh, Israel would never, would never ever permit, for example, a, a an Arab or a Palestinian to become prime minister, uh, nor to hold any senior positions, for example, in the defense ministries uh, uh, and other uh, ministries and so on. So really, these people, I mean, it's, you know, it's sad they were really left to fend uh, for themselves. Add to this the fact that after the Nakba, Israel cut off their ties completely with the Arab world. It was illegal to uh, communicate with anyone in Syria or Lebanon or Jordan with the threat of prison sentences if they did. So they were really completely wrenched out of their natural uh, environment and scope 
uh, and placed in this alien state. And uh, today, when I look at my fellow Palestinians uh, living inside Israel, I see really a very different group of people than those in the West Bank. They have different challenges. Uh, they have come to uh, deal with the state by knowing it from inside. Uh, and they operate uh, in a different way, in a survival mode that is uh, somewhat different from the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. So sadly, we have become, you know, disparate groups of uh, people with little connection between us. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, I'd like you to expand on this a little bit, because as you say, the world is becoming more aware of the reality of what's happened to the Palestinians and the and the terrible, terrible um role of Israeli occupation and Israeli, you know, conquest. I think that's true. Jewish and democratic immediately takes away the democratic. Why? Because you cannot be democratic only for a certain group of people within that country. And then others of the country are not somehow uh, treated the same or are not uh, the same level of citizenship. Automatically, you've removed the democratic. So this continues to be the line that Israel touts over and over again. And it's really amazes uh, us Palestinians and many others uh, how it can somehow see itself uh, uh, like that and be comfortable with that definition. Uh, this contradiction uh, lies really uh, at the crux of Israel's uh, existence uh, as a very uh, racist project. Uh, racist because uh, it is, it is uh, portrayed or it sees it as a, a homeland for the Jewish people and for nobody else, ignores the fact that there were other people uh, living on this land before it came and, you know, carried out this onslaught against them. Effectively, I think what has happened is since the Israel's creation, it has never really quite known what to do with the Palestinians remaining in it. And uh, when I was researching my book, I did find one or two accounts of uh, Israeli uh, officials who, let's say, had been candid enough uh, in closed meetings or whatever to say, you know what, we made a big mistake leaving any of them here uh, about yeah. us. <clears throat> uh, because, you know, obviously with time and natural you know, population growth, today we are, uh, I think, just over 20% of the population. So one in five people is not uh, the Jew for which the democracy exists. Um what this means in terms of daily life is very, very uh, intricate. And that's why sometimes it's very difficult for people from outside uh, to understand it. Because on the face of it, yes, we enjoy the same citizenship. We have the same rights. Uh, however, uh, just you know, a closer look at some of the details, um, of which some of which I recount in my book, certainly in my own experience, applying to uh, workplaces. Uh, the right to have a job, to have employment, which should be every person's right uh, in a country. And in fact, the state should worry about this and encourage it, employment. Uh, many workplaces that I applied to would ask me for an army number. Uh, as, a, as a Palestinian minority in the state, we are exempt from serving in the Israeli army. Uh, and this is used as a way to kind of keep you out of certain jobs without telling you outright that it's because you are a Palestinian. So they ask you for your army number. Very often, if you can't provide it, they'll smile and they say, well, thank you very much. We'll call you. And they never do. Um, many kinds of uh, jobs uh, and workplaces, you will find that, you know, uh, Palestinians are employed and they work, but that the, 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 the higher the promotion, the less likelihood it, there is that the Palestinian will get the position. Uh, and I've seen this among, you know, friends and relatives and so on. I've had, you know, examples 
that people have told me. Now, around our areas, our villages and our towns, very little development is undertaken by the state. There's almost zero business initiatives. Uh, it took forever for them to put a functioning uh, uh, public transport system in place. I mean, for Suta up until, I believe, something like 10 years ago, had, I think, one bus that went and one bus that came or a couple of them throughout the day. Um, there was no you know, functioning daycare center for mothers who wish to work. I mean, these things that are a given uh, in Jewish communities for us, you know, have have still not all materialized. So you can really see, in fact, even as a visitor, if you are driving, uh, you can automatically tell or you learn to tell which are the Jewish communities and which are the Palestinian ones by the degree of underdevelopment of the latter. Yeah. Um, the discrimination also, I mean, if you are in a public place, sometimes if we're speaking in Arabic, we'll get looks uh, from people and sometimes it can be very intimidating uh, at football games uh, in Jerusalem it's normal for Jewish uh, uh, spectators or fans to shout and scream death to Arabs death to Arabs throughout the match and without the police or anybody intervening uh, the level of violence against uh, Palestinian citizens the way if anything goes wrong you know they are beaten up brutally before the police really finds out really bothers to find out what's going on. Here, I think I can interject and say there are a lot of parallels. Perhaps the easiest way for people to understand the situation of the Palestinians in Israel is that of the blacks in the US. Of course, in different you know contexts and with different uh, uh, challenges and so on. But that's, that's what we feel. We are very much the blacks uh, in the system. You can hear a much longer conversation with Fida Juris by tuning in to episode 77. Welcome back. We're bombarded with relentless and punishing propaganda that places the U.S. at the epicenter of the whole wide world. We're the exceptional nation, the propaganda says, the indispensable nation, the most remarkable people who've ever lived, a shining beacon on a hill to the lesser nations. This propaganda, so unremitting, becomes an American common sense, and there's nothing more dogmatic and insistent than common sense. But notice that this particular American dogma separates us from humanity. It encourages us to see a selective humanization and sets up a hierarchy in which some human beings are more worthy of recognition, more worthy of care, more worthy of support than other human beings. If freedom is our horizon, we have to reject all forms of selective humanization and we have to become active internationalists. This isn't easy for Americans. It requires a conscious effort to open your eyes, to resist the propaganda, to see the world large, and then to reach out in solidarity. Overcoming American nationalism, American exceptionalism, American blindness can take many forms, many turns. But at different historical moments, some freedom struggles have emerged to focus the world's attention. At one point, every internationalist everywhere, whatever else they did, had to have Vietnam in their sights. At another point, South Africa demanded everyone's attention. Today, whatever else we do, Palestine must be in our hearts, our minds, and our work. 
I urge you to return to episode number 23, Free Free Palestine, with Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Middle East Studies at Columbia University, and episode number 41, Hope is a State of Mind, with Dean Khalidi, founding director of Palestine Legal. And episode 77 was called Stranger in My Own Land with Fida Giris, author, activist, organizer, who we spoke to in her home in the Galilee. Today, we're joined by Destiny Phillips, Beth Awano, and Eliza Gonring, three comrades from Chicago who journeyed to Palestine to study, to learn, and to join hands in our common struggle against settler colonialism. So I'm going to push it back to Roxana and let her take over co-hosting today. Roxana. Hi, I'm Roxana Espos, and I'm co-hosting Under the Free podcast today because Bill's not in the studio with us. Bill, why don't you tell us where in the world you are? Well, Bernadine and I are driving back from the wilderness of California. We've been on the road for two full days. We're exhausted, but we raced as fast as we could to get to a town called Oglala, Nebraska. And we're here at Oglala in a subway. There might be some freak, you know, freaky noises and stuff in the background, but I wanted to be on with y'all. And we made this date a long time ago. So we're happy to be here. I want to say one thing about Oglala. Oglala is, of course, named for the Oglala Sioux. And we just passed Julesburg, which is a town in Nebraska. And if they've never read the book Crazy Horse by Mari Sandoz, it is a brilliant, brilliant book, a, a biography, really, of the Oglala leader, um, Crazy Horse. And there's a lot you should read, obviously, about the taking of this land, the genocide, the land theft. Certainly, Roxanne uh, Dunbar Ortiz, it, you know, an indigenous people's history of the United States, which kind of is apropos of us talking about Palestine tonight. But the other thing is um, Raul Peck's film his TV series called Exterminate All the Brutes. But if you get a chance, put this on your book list. Mari Sandoz, S-A-N-D-O-Z, Crazy Horse, the biography of the strange man of the Sioux. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful book. And I read it last summer driving through here. Now here we are again. So my land acknowledgement is this is Sioux territory where I'm coming from. And uh, we have to remember that this is stolen land that we're occupying. We have to do all we can to repair that fix. So let's just start at the beginning. Y'all went to Palestine. Eliza, why don't you tell us who you went with and when you went? Yeah, so we traveled in March, I believe early March, early to mid-March. Um, we were there for a week and we traveled with, uh, I always say that I was like the plus one to someone's plus five, I think. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> we traveled as the real youth initiative contingent, but we were invited by a law student, um, on a NYU law school's chapter of students for justice in Palestine. Um, and then the travel company we were traveling through was Paltrek, which is uh, short for Palestine Trek. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I want to say the opportunity was granted through a friend of Tommy's um, that go to um, New York. I mean, that, that attends the college in New York, and that was a part of the Pale Track group. 
So one, it wouldn't have been possible without without him. <laughs> um, but I took the opportunity to go to not only build relationships with people in Palestine, but to also seek firsthand understanding of the things that the Palestinians are enduring. Um, and of course, build relationships, build solidarity and be in community with them as well to let them know like, you know, you're not going through this alone, no matter how many miles away we are. We still here in America, in the U.S., in Chicago, fight similar situations. Well, we're also part of a longer tradition of solidarity tourism in Palestine. Um, and it's a political tactic. It's an anti-colonial tactic. So we're, we're kind of carrying the torch of a larger tradition. Um, and I think the moment calls for it right now. We went um, at a moment that, I mean, it's part of the moment right now. I guess the moment calls for it right now because we're in a in a moment of heightened violence towards Palestinians um, in the larger in the larger trajectory of settler colonial violence and um, an erasure of Palestinian people. Um, and I think each of us have different experiences that have brought us to this moment of, of wanting to build solidarity and community with people in Palestine. Um, but for me personally, I think. Being a young person who grew up in New York as a Jew, there's a lot that I feel like I've learned through my own family, through like religious spaces I've been a part of, and also through the culture we live in. That's just not true about the narrative behind who are Palestinians, what are the real claims to land, what is the reason why Israel exists, period. And I think all of us have work to do to, to kind of unlearn what we've both passively and maybe not so passively learned. Um, and that takes intention and going to Palestine is one way to kind of create a base of understanding that builds on what we've read, what we've kind of heard. Um, but now we have people, places, and experiences to really point to and say, this is what's going on. These are relationships that hold that meaning. And these are people who carry forward um, the Palestinian existence despite its denial. What are some of the myths that you think it's important that we expose? I think one that I've been fed on repeat is that it's too complicated to understand and therefore it's better to keep our hands off the entire issue. Um, and I remember even in high school, we'd have the Israel-Palestine assembly where it'd be people taking positions on a podium and kind of arguing against one another. And where they chose as the beginning of the conversation was always, you know, it was always contrived to to kind of lean toward why Israel has a right to exist and Palestinians don't necessarily have a, a voice in the debate. Um, and so I think that for a long time, I've just been too nervous to even broach the subject, um, feeling as though I have to learn all on my own. Um, and I think that finding community in Chicago at the age of 22, um, 23 is, is something that was necessary for me to be able to to finally sit down and say, I'm not going to be pushed away by all the different people who've told me it's too complicated to understand, but I'm, it's important to all of our ability to struggle for liberation in the U.S. to also understand liberation struggles around the world. Um, and, yeah. I did not know Gorn uh, would give me the opportunity to actually meet Palestinian people firsthand outside of like going through tours and going through different towns and cities 
and having a tour guide, but besides that, actually meeting Palestinians and um, Ramallah and spending the last two or three days there. Um, and it happened by, you know, just going out and exploring and seeing like different places. Like the last, I want to say, the third day to the last day being there, me and Denzel had went in like this gaming room. And when we went in a gaming room, it was almost like something you see on like TV. It's like a game room and it has so many laptops and all of these kids is like playing games. And then it's a snack area. Um, and we go and everybody just runs up to us and like, hey, what's y'all name? But we had to turn on a translator because they didn't really understand English. So we was talking through the, uh, to them, like, through a translator until, like, the owner came who spoke English. And then he would, like, translate for us. And we told them, like, you know, we hear where we was from, what was our mission, like, why were we there? Um, and they had so many questions. But we spent, like, the last two or three days actually building, like, a strong bond with them. And now to this day, like, we still call and check on one another and, you know, just have talks about different things that we may not still understand, even though that we went on a trip or things that they going through now, because during the time that we went, it was it was really, I feel like, perfect timing, because when we left, it was a lot of uprisings, a lot of bombing, a lot of um, a lot of violence that occurred right after we left. So we were able to like call them and say, hey, you know, are you all okay? Are you still breathing? Do you need access to anything? Is there anything that we can do while we're here? Um, things like that. So I, I feel like that trip made it, building that relationship with them was great. And these were young people? Yes, these was young people. Um, I want to say, yeah, we met people. The youngest one we met was like 14. Um, but through the duration of the three days, we were able to meet their parents, their grandparents, um, their uncles, their aunties. They introduced us to their whole family. Yeah, um, we did meet with a, we didn't meet with a group, but we had, went, attended a presentation uh, from a group that works with incarcerated people in Palestine. Um, I was able to ask them about some of the organizing that occurs in Palestinian prisons, because I think it's very very just very well coordinated and very well organized uh, both inside and outside in regards to how they engage with hunger strikes and other tactics um so that was very interesting um i did at moments discuss um my work with um folks in palestine but sometimes i actually ran into in interesting issues in regards to racial politics um I think especially in regards to how Black Americans are perceived um, abroad, just with a difference in understanding of how anti-Blackness works at a global scale, um, where I don't think people quite understood the enormity or the, the severity of the situation inside of American prisons um, and the reality of anti-Blackness, um, just where folks are kind of like, oh, yeah, but it's different in America. Whereas I would be walking like into an occupied like Palestinian village, going through like the checkpoints, the little like security wheel that you have to go through, and thinking how similar it was to the feeling of going inside of like an American prison. Um, but yeah, sometimes the conversations 
just didn't click, which is no fault to the people I was talking to. I think it's just a consequence of white supremacy and anti-blackness. Just like Eliza said, it gave me flashbacks, actually, of being inside prison when, like, you go through one checkpoint, but before you can get to the next actual checkpoint, you either have to wait till the door closes to go through the next one. And because we had such a long line, um, it took us about, like, 20 minutes to get to one checkpoint because it was one person at a time and you have to wait until a door closes to go to through the next door um also the authorities were it was like two different types of um authorities it was like one that was military based and then the other one was like palestinians um but saying that actually made me visualize like how there's black guards in prison governing black people um, and then you also have a group of um, white guards governing black people as well. Um, so that's the connection I made be- between that and then how even just going through like a religious area, how they have checkpoints, reminded me of like just being like just existing in Chicago and walking down the street and maybe saying like um like the police station on one on one block and you know having to walk past or being harassed or living down the street from a police uh, um a police station and how popularized overly populated that area may be with polices Something that I was thinking about as we were moving through the checkpoints is that we're not the people who are going to bear the brunt of the violence moving through those checkpoints. And even when we were moving through them, they would mention that we were going through two checkpoints. But if you were Palestinian with a Palestinian passport or like with a Palestinian ID, um, you would be moving through four. And so even just the sheer like performance of security that we were experiencing versus what Palestinians were experiencing is is kind of it's difficult to even conceptualize what that would mean, especially if you're moving through checkpoints on a daily basis. Um, And I think that I'm not someone who's aware of all the security cameras that are on me at every point, but the tour guide would point out in one direction, there'd be a security camera that was using racial recognition technology. um, And another, it was pointing toward the street and also toward the checkpoint. I mean, like they were kind of like a, almost like a secondary heightened awareness of where the security cameras were placed as a Palestinian that I wasn't kind of keyed into as an American um, that I think was, was eye opening to then come back to the U S and be more critical and aware of the security that we experienced too, but not to nearly to the same degree that Palestinians are facing in occupied spaces. I mean, the contradiction Eliza, that we feel sometimes when we go to Stateville prison, or the contradiction destiny that we feel when we go to the youth prisons, we can walk out and they can't walk out. And there's something excruciating about that every time. And I wondered if those feelings ever surfaced while you were in Palestine. There was one checkpoint in particular that stood out to me that I think felt the most like, I mean, Stateville is like a maximum security prison. So there's like a lot of gates that you're going through and that's after 
getting patted down and if you're getting patted down as a woman as the state dictates it's quite a severe pat down um i can't remember what city it is but there's a pretty famous mosque in that city um but that checkpoint in particular it was like a city that was like either like a zone c city surrounded by zone a or maybe vice versa so the security levels there were really different and i think i felt that exact feeling you're talking about bill when you have that feeling of like that that weight being lifted off of knowing you can walk out but also that like just really crushing dread that there are people that aren't able to walk out of that situation and i think one of the things that stuck out to me the most about that area was seeing like a fence surrounding people's houses but it had those like point like pointy spike things that fences have at the top but instead of being pointed out they were pointed inside towards the houses because they were keeping people in the fences and this was like maybe like four houses within a larger neighborhood and i had never seen anything like that in my life um and then i think there's like certain things where you like get the phrase open air prison starts to make more and more sense to you. You can hear a much longer conversation with these Chicago activists by tuning in to episode 81. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast Ergo co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life the pursuit of compassion. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.